Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mike, what is that sound? Sounds like crickets. No, it's my hips as I'm walking down the hallway <laughs> because I have arthritis. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I'm Dr. Mike Todorovic and I'm joined here with my co-host, Dr. Matthew Barton. Why so formal? I don't know. Um, I just thought today, considering the topic, we should be as professional as possible. Okay. Um, The topic is no more special than any other topic that we do, but Matt and I are senior lecturers at Griffith University. We teach anatomy and physiology, pathophysiology, pharmacology to aspiring health professionals. We also host a popular, well, podcast, which we're on. <laughs> I'm not sure. Popular podcast. by our standards. Uh, no, we've got good, good views. We have over 6,000 downloads of this podcast a week. That's pretty good. Please thank your mum for that. Uh, yes. Well, she's just on repeat, just pressing and downloading and pressing and downloading. We've got a YouTube channel which is going pretty well. Nearly 4 million views on our videos. Please subscribe, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. YouTube. Yeah, YouTube. I've already started off so poorly here. Today we're talking about inflammation and Matt was highlighting he's got an inflamed hip. Bursitis, maybe bursitis. No, arthritis. Oh, you had arthritis. Itis, maybe we'll come back to that. Oh, you osteo. Arthritis. Oh, prefixes, suffixes. We mm-hmm. Okay, very good, very good. So essentially, itis is a suffix for yeah. itis. So whenever you hear itis, what is it? You just said itis is a suffix for itis. <laughs> I sorry. This is a bad beginning. So suffix the suffix of inflammation is itis. So whenever you hear the itis at the end of a um, medical term, an, an anatomical <laughs> location, it's generally meant it's inflamed. <laughs> Currently, I've got inflammation of my rib. So what is that called? Costochondritis. Brilliant. So rib. Cartilage inflammation. 
Perfect. Isn't this great? I did excessive amounts of chin-ups. Okay, That's what, what three? It. You did three chin-ups. Moving along. What are we <laughs> going to cover today? Inflammation. We're going to go through acute inflammation, so that's good-looking inflammation. Uh, no, that's short-term inflammation. Chronic inflammation will be a separate episode because... But we'll touch upon it. Yeah, we'll touch upon it, but it's pretty extensive and pretty complex, so we'll go through that in a separate episode. Now, to define inflammation, which I think should be the beginning, at the very beginning is the best place to start. Inflammation is a response that the body has anytime you have damage to vascularized tissue. Okay, so this means tissue with a blood supply. Yeah, a dedicated blood supply. So pretty much every bit of tissue in your body except maybe cartilage. Yeah, so if you look at tissues of the body... you know, So my hips are screwed. Your hips don't lie. <laughs> when we look at vascularized tissue, the dedicated blood supply delivering the oxygen and nutrients to those tissues to keep them alive. Some tissues, actually the blood supply is quite a way away from them. And so it gets its oxygen and nutrients through diffusion. And cartilage is one of these tissues. And like you said, if you, you can get inflammation of cartilage because you have costochondritis, but there's some cartilage in which the inflammatory response is minimal because of its lack of a blood supply. Uh, and, and probably it's healing as well then. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which then brings us to why we have inflammation. And the purpose of inflammation is to help deal with the issue at hand, so help mitigate what's caused the problem, right? And you're going to talk about the causes of inflammation in a second, but also pave the path for repair in that area. And healing, yes. And healing. Brilliant. So that's why we have an inflammatory it's a, response. It's an immune response, right? Yep. So it's a normal immune response. It's innate, so it's non-specific to whatever's causing the injury. Um, and... Anything else? No, that's pretty much it. It's part of the innate immune system. And it doesn't matter what's causing it. It's just going to respond. It's going to try and deal with that cause. Now, inflammation is like a friend that's come to visit. You like them in the short term. You know, thanks, they, thanks, Mike. They stay for two hours. And it's like, yeah, it's good. It's been good catching up. And then they just stay. They don't take the hint. They don't leave. And then they stay for too long and then they become annoying. And this is inflammation. We need it in the short term. We want to get rid of it in the long term. You like that? Yeah, it's not not bad. So Matt is inflammation. Now, cute, cute <laughs> inflammation. Um, when we have an inflammatory response, we always get the same four to five cardinal signs. Now, these cardinal signs we've known for about two thousand years. From a, we've said this so many times, I always forget Roman or maybe Latin. Latin isn't a place, but a <laughs> Roman physician called Celsus, and he outlined the four cardinal signs of inflammation. In Latin. In Latin. What were they? Um, okay, so there is rubor. Rubor means redness. Yep. Uh, tumor. Means or swelling. Tumor. Like, yeah. like cancer, a tumor. Yep. Swelling. Swelling, yeah. Um, dolor. Yeah, dolor is pain. Okay, and ooh, I should really know this. Oh, heat. Calor. Calor means, yeah, heat. Like calorie. Exactly. Mm. So redness, heat, pain, and swelling. They're the cardinal signs. Are the four cardinal signs. And you could probably add a fifth one, which some of the textbooks do, which is what? Loss of function. Yeah. Functiono losso. I made that up. I don't know what the Latin is for that. It's probably something along those lines. So they're the four cardinal signs. So they always happen every time we have inflammation. And you've probably had some inflammatory response occur. Maybe you've cut yourself and you've seen this redness, heat, pain, and swelling. We're going to go through why this happens. Now, Matt alluded to the itis before, and he said costochondritis is something that is got. 
Can we think of any other terms that have itis as a suffix? Appendicitis. Okay, inflammation of the appendix. Uh, meningitis. Uh, inflammation of the meninges, the layer that surrounds the brain. Yep. Any uh, rhinos- rhinitis. Uh, inflammation of a rhinoceros. Well, I wasn't going to mention it, Mike, but... Well, okay. It's Here we go. Nose jokes already. <laughs> Nose jokes six minutes into the podcast. All right. Can you have uh, gin- gingivitis? <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's, just- <laughs> that's, that's good. Classic. All right. <laughs> Uh, any any other artists you want to mention? Heaps, but let's not go through it. Okay. So what will cause inflammation, Matt? What are the causes? So there's four main causes of inflammation. So every inflammatory response comes, you can break it down to these four. Yeah. Particularly if you learn in most diseases, because you would imagine that the majority of diseases, this is just me guess, guesstimating, would have inflammation somewhere in it. Do you agree? You're looking at me funny. Well, I don't understand the question. I'm just saying like in pathophysiology, when you're studying how a disease comes about, I would say inflammation is in there somewhere. Yeah, I I would say so because inflammation is damage to tissue with a dedicated blood supply and a lot of homeostasis is some form of damage to tissue with a dedicated blood supply. So whether it's type 2 diabetes, whether it's Alzheimer's disease, whether it's uh, a heart attack, Mm. Um, inflammation's in there somewhere. That's a great point. Okay. Great point. And so... So it's the core of disease. Yeah, so you can bring it back to try to understand what's the basis of that inflammation and it comes to four. Okay, so number one, there's an infection. All right. Okay, so this could be a microorganism. So a virus, a bacteria, a fungus, fungi. Um, protozo- yes, I am. Proto- protozoa. Um, any other ones there? Prions. Uh, yeah, that's a bit... Of a harder one because that's a protein. But anyway, infection is one. Protista? Oh, you said protozoa. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Um, number two, tissue necrosis. So this is probably where the majority of it will lie. So this is where you have actually cells have been killed. So necrosis is different to apoptosis, right? right? Both are cellular death, but how are they different? Apoptosis <laughs> is a planned cell death. So the cell gets could get infected. It could get injured, even a cancer like a precancerous state, the cell um, through a process of communication mediators, like a, a stepwide process says, oh, for the greater good of my body, I'm going to just end it here. Mm. And it's a very programmed, a very controlled process. And as a result, it doesn't cause inflammation, but necrosis does. So this is where the, the cells kind of killed without its own will. And that it kind of busts open everywhere, releasing a whole lot of stuff. And that will probably induce inflammation. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, necrosis will spill its guts. Apoptosis will slowly destroy from the inside out. And, s- and so with that said, because I don't think I'll come back to it because I'll forget, <laughs> but what breaks when the cell breaks open and releases all its content, it's all that stuff that causes inflammation. So yeah. what, what, essentially a cell is a bag of um, chemicals. I was going to say potassium. Potassium. Sure. So potassium will cause inflammation to begin. Yeah. Okay. DNA will cause uh, inflammation to begin. Even ATP will cause inflammation. Does it have to be foreign DNA? No, your own DNA. Because um, it's it's assumed, I guess, that if anywhere there was a significant amount of DNA, it means that a cell 
has been injured or dead. Ah. Where it should be held in a nucleus, right? Yeah, it should be compartmentalised in the nucleus yeah. within a cell, not out in the floating around in the interstitium. Yeah, so that will initiate, and even high amounts of ATP will initiate, initiate it. Interesting. But that, that all comes about through tissue necrosis. And what could kill, kill a cell could be things like um, mechanical injury, chemical injury, temp- temperature injury. You got any other ones? Oh, that pretty much hits it on the head. Ischemia. Okay, yeah, yeah. So lack of blood supply. Lack of oxygen or nutrients, yep. So that's number two. Number three, a foreign body. Okay, so like a splinter or some kind of substance that shouldn't be in your body and your immune system recognises it's been foreign and will mount an attack on it. Maybe like pollen for some people or peanuts for some people. But it could, am I correct in saying this, that... If it's something that is innocuous, yep. it still damages the cells. You're still going to have an inflammatory response. So you may have a sterile, I don't know, let's say a sterile pin that, oh, then, okay. that then damages the tissue. And because it's vascularized, it, it may not have any microbial agents. It may not have any uh, antigens for the body to recognize on its surface. But because it's still damaging vascularized tissue, yeah, it, could it can do. still result in an inflammatory response. That, that could be right, but then maybe the pin, I, I don't know the specifics here, but the pin might be, let's say, That's because st- I made it up. So there's steel. No oh, yeah. If you just put it in your, let's just say you embedded it into your subcutaneous tissue and just left it there, maybe the steel, your immune system would react to it and cause inflammation. But if it was made out of titanium, maybe the titanium in its nature doesn't, it's inert. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I think the key is whether you damage tissue or not. So you can embed, for example, you can embed some sort of uh, innocuous metals or non-reactive metals, yep. and as long as you don't damage the tissue extensively, I'm not sure. Not I think, that, I think there are some materials. Even if you put in without causing cell damage, it could cause an immune reaction because you're just seeing it as foreign. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. But on this point, you can still have uh, a reaction causing inflammation on endogenous things like fat. So some inf- inflammatory responses is due to fat. Too much fat, such as um, fat building up in your blood vessels. This is oh, yeah. this leads on to a chronic inflammation called atherosclerosis. So you start putting too much fat into a blood vessel wall, the immune system reacts to it and brings in lymphocytes, brings in uh, fibroblasts and start to make it a complicated plaque which then causes potentially heart disease or brain disease or peripheral vascular disease. So a, a common theme that I'm picking up here is that you can get an inflammatory response to your own body, uh, to innocuous um, components of your own body, yeah. if they are outside of their area in which they should be in, or maybe just excessive. Okay, because even like the like the basis of say metabolic syndrome, yeah. which is the basis of maybe obesity, then leads into inflammation, which could cause inflammation to your pancreas, and then cause you to get type two diabetes. It's a chronic kind of under you know this subclinical inflammatory response bubbling away that's causing all these kind of injurious responses throughout the body like alzheimer's d- disease dementia you're reacting to a protein in an in a neuron which then causes a kind of inflammatory chronic infl- inflammatory response which can cause destruction of neurons which leads to dementia makes sense so we're we're delving into chronic here yeah we're getting lost but i'm just highlighting that um foreign bodies could be exogenous or even endogenous in a way. Gotcha. Okay. And then finally, immune reaction. So too much of an immune response 
can cause inflammation. And this could be the basis of the hypersensitivity disorders or autoimmune diseases. So are these like allergies? Could be. So type 1 hypersensitivity, you're reacting to uh, pollen, let's say. Yep. Um, and your immune system is so aggressive against the pollen, it causes inflammation to everywhere where the pollen's been exposed. And this could be your nose, your pharynx, your upper airway, and then you get all the response, like you see in hay fever. Yeah. Or it might be so exaggerated, like you respond to an innocuous um, thing like peanuts, a peanut protein, but you get a whole systemic response and puts you into anaphylaxis. This is one of the reasons why I dislike people who use the term boosted immune system. When people say, oh, what can I do to boost my immune system? My response is, you don't want to boost your immune system. If you boost it, you're exaggerating it. You're amplifying it. And we've got actual diseases and disorders of boosted, amplified, exaggerated immune response. And they are these types of hypersensitivity reactions and autoimmune diseases. So, It's not about that. So when people think of the immune system, don't think that you're, for whatever reason, it's running at below capacity. It's about having your immune system working appropriately. It's either not working appropriately or it is working appropriately. It's got nothing to do with whether you need more of this or less of this. Mm. Or if you have it heightened all the time, it's going to prevent any kind of infection ever. Yeah, that's right. That's right. If a virus, it's lock and key. You know, it, it's like saying I've got 100 people inside my house um, with guns protecting it from people coming in. Uh, if somebody's got a key to your front door, they're still going to open the door and get in, right? You may kill them once they're in if you've got an appropriate immune response, but it may be a little bit excessive and you're going to have damage to your house. So, yeah. And this is, this is, I know this is a bit of a digression, but this is part of the difficulty with creating a, a vaccine is you want to create a vaccine that your body responds to and creates antibodies against, but you don't want to make it so serious that your immune system will then respond to that second challenge that it will um, cause a pathology. And this is, I think, my understanding of why it was so difficult to get a vaccine. I don't think we have of SARS-1. No. It's because we've developed, we, they developed the vaccine, which was great, it caused a great reaction to the, the B cells and produced a ton of antibodies. But then when they challenged, they did this in an animal model, I think primates, they challenged the animal again with the SARS virus and the immune system was so exaggerated that it caused significant lung pathology that I think the animals died. Yeah. So this kind of highlights what you don't want an overzealous yes. immune system. And don't take this as... Um, a, a justification for no vaccines because like Matt's saying, you've got to finally tune these things. And when we create a vaccine, we want to create a part of a disease-causing agent that the body recognises to create a memory for. And so like Matt said, if the immune system's not acting appropriately, then you can have an inappropriate response which can be damaging. Yeah. But once we get through all the clinical trials of vaccines, we know at the end of the day we have a, a safe and effective vaccine and a safe and effective vaccine schedule. And that's what they're trying to do at the moment with the SARS-CoV-2, trying to create a vaccine for this coronavirus. Anyway, we digress a little bit. All right, just, so just to reiterate the causes, there's four, infections one, tissue necrosis two, foreign bodies three, immune reactions four. Perfect. Okay, now when we have an inflammatory response... Regardless of the cause, we're going to have the same reactive response 
forming those four cardinal signs, redness, pain, heat and swelling. It's innate, so it doesn't care what's causing it. There's two phases to the inflammatory response. There's a vascular phase in which you have certain chemicals coming into play and the vascular supply to that area is dynamic and changes, which we'll talk about. And then the second phase, so it comes after the vascular phase, is the cellular phase. And this is where white blood cells come into play to try and clean the area out and pave the way for healing or repair. Yeah. Let's provide an example and work our way through. What do you think? Do you just want to flesh out the phase a bit more? Nope. I think we'll do it when we walk through. Oh, when you do the example. I think so. Okay. Okay. So Matt has... Uh, a menagerie of of animals here in his at his place. Uh, he's got about fifteen goats, forty seven cattle, <laughs> twelve sheep, four llamas, and a sloth. Um, now the goats are surrounded by a fence, and to be honest, it's a bit rusty and it probably needs to be redone. And I know that Matt was walking around the perimeter yesterday um, just to see if there's any holes. And he scraped the side of his leg on a rusty bit of that fence that was poking out. Now, I'm looking, he's wearing shorts. Unfortunately for me, the shorts are too short, but I can see the scrape on his leg and it's gross. It's, it's red. Inflamed. It's swollen. It's inflamed. So he's had an inflammatory response from this metal cutting the tissue of his leg. This is our example tetanus. that we're using. Do you have tetanus? No. So, rusted fence, hey? A lot of people think that tetanus comes from rust. Is this true? Um, I don't believe so. My understanding is tetanus comes from a bacteria. Um, bacillus tetanae? Is it a yeah. bacillus? Anyway, it's an exotoxin. It's a toxin that's produced by the bacteria that causes the neurological response, Yeah. Um, which is devastating. Would which lead is tetanus. To, which will, or tetanae, yeah. right? Which is like your muscles just go into a tetanae Clonic. response. Yeah. Um, my understanding is the um, the bacteria is more, uh, in what's the word, endemic to farming dirt. So like dirt, your place, dirt in um, farming areas. Yeah. Okay. So my guess is where they thought it came from the barbed wire fence, um, that was probably the method of injury, and then they maybe kept on walking and then walked walk through a whole lot of dirt, and the bacteria came in and so forth. But I don't think the bacteria is sitting around on the barbed wire fence waiting to get uh, into someone's body. No, but you always hear people saying, oh, I got cut by a bit of metal. It was a little bit rusted. I better get a tetanus shot. Uh, I think it's just a method of, um, and it's potentially just dirty and things, more likely things to come in. Anyway, no tetanus here. Matt's just cut himself on a rusted metal fence. And what he's done now is he's damaged some of his connective tissue. So Think about this. When you damage the first couple of layers of epithelia, that stratified squamous epithelia, there's no dedicated blood supply. So you can scrape those cells away and not have an inflammatory response because it's avascular, right? But this part of the fence went deeper than that. Okay. It went through the epidermis into the dermis, which now has connective tissue, which has a blood supply. Yep. Now you've damaged these connective tissue cells and what you're going to find dispersed through connective tissue cells are a very special kind of cell called what? Uh, well, in most cases, most abundantly throughout the body are mast cells. Yes. But I think there's three main types of immune cells that become residents in tissue. One being mast cells, the most abundant, um, also macrophages, resident macrophages and also dendritic cells. So in the context of skin 
you have dendritic cells in your skin called Langerhans cells. Yeah. All these three would react probably the first reaction as a cell to a type of injury or, yeah, in this case, um, cell damage. And, and the first response is to sp- spill their guts, basically, and they release... Or their granules. That's right. It's a well, polite way to say it. Okay. So instead of spilling their guts, they release intracellular granules yeah. and they're filled with chemicals. So they're already preformed. They're just sitting in there ready to vomit it out. Yeah, that's a good point. And what's the main chemical coming out of this? Yeah, just to make it simple, it would be histamine. And we've all heard of histamine before. I'm sure a lot of us have taken antihistamines yep. uh, when we have terrible hay fever. Mm-hmm. And we just spoke earlier about hypersensitivity, right? Brilliant. And inflammation. So maybe there's a key here for antihistamines. And what histamine does is it does two main important roles. When it's released from these cells, specifically the mast cells, it travels to that capillary bed that's feeding that damaged tissue and it tells the blood supply coming in, so the arterial end, to dilate. Okay. So if it dilates, what does that mean? Uh, More blood flow? More blood flow goes to that area. So that's the first thing it does. Second thing histamine does is it goes to the capillary bed and we know capillaries are the site of exchange. So there's little holes or pores at capillary beds. These holes or pores don't let certain things out but does let other things out. So basically, it lets through anything that's small enough, which okay. normally... You mean all the time? All the time. Right. It needs gases to leave, it needs nutrients to leave, and it needs blood plasma to leave, right? Okay. And that's happening all the time to feed the tissues. Now, the thing is, the things that are too big, which are the proteins and the cells red blood cells, white blood cells, and proteins like albumin, mm-hmm. made of the liver, they stay in the capillary bed. They don't so leave. in the actual blood itself. That's right. And the reason, and this is important, why, they, why they're there and they stay, is they produce something called an oncotic pressure or oncotic force, which is a pulling force. So all the fluid that leaves at the capillary bed, all that plasma pushing out oxygen and nutrients needs to get pulled back in. Otherwise, we lose the bulk of our blood supply. So this is a normal process. We're not in inflammation at the moment in your explanation. Yes, true. Okay. This is what happens normally. Right. right. We lose all this fluid every single day into the interstitium, the area outside the blood vessel but between the cells. We need to reclaim it. Otherwise, our blood pressure drops. We die we within a day. Pump, we become puffy. Yeah. We look, start to look like Matt. But luckily, we've got these cells and proteins inside the blood vessel and they pull the fluid back in. So on the arterial end of the capillary bed, oxygen, nutrients, gases, you know, and fluid push out. On the venous end, so not too far down the track, all that stuff's pulled back in, right? Perfect. Now in inflammation, you've got histamine dilating the arterial end. So more fluid coming through that capillary bed, which means more fluid is being pushed out at that tissue. But at the same time, the space or the gaps between the cells of the capillary bed called the endothelium, they contract. The endothelial cells contract and the spaces get bigger. Right. And so more fluid leaves, but not just the fluid. We've got proteins leaving. We've got some cells leaving, right? right? Yep. Now what that means is at the venous end, we don't have that pulling force to pull all the fluid back in and the fluid remains outside the blood vessel in the tissue. So... This is what histamine's done. More blood to the area. Okay. More fluid leaving the cell. What cardinal signs do you and think? This is, and this is all pretty quick, isn't it? This is immediate. And, and this will be considered the vascular phase of the inflammation. Absolutely. Okay. 
So what cardinal signs can you already see coming into play here just from histamine vasodilating and increasing vascular permeability? Well, if you've got more blood flow, you're going to have more blood, therefore more redness and more heat. Okay, that's two of the four. Okay, and because you've got fluid leaving, the area will become swollen. That's three. Okay. Now, the fourth one is pain. So, right. can you get pain due to any of these particular things? I think, I think histamine has a very mild effect on probably sensitizing nerves or nerve endings. Directly, yeah. Uh, I think the swelling, so the fluid that's spilling out is pushing on the nerve ends so that's probably going to cause the um, the nerves that transmit like noxious stimuli are probably going to be more sensitive now so they're probably more likely to send signals to your brain to say this area is a bit, a bit painful yeah but, but i don't think it's the primary player yet but you're probably starting to get a bit of pain in that area that's right so that's why we now need to start bringing in a couple of more chemicals yeah so histamine like matt said's preformed <coughs> but when we get this damage this damage triggers certain cells to produce certain chemicals. So they're now starting to become formed. So Yeah, that's a good point. One caveat I just want to make here is we're not going to be exhaustive with our chemical mediators because there's just too many of them. That's more so Matt talking and, to me as opposed to talking and, to you. And uh, it will go on forever. <laughs> so I think we're just going to stick with the, the main couple. Is that okay. fair? Yeah. All right. Okay. So, so the, the first point we've made is the preformed chemicals have been released to the the injurious agent, and this has been histamine. Now we're moving on to agents that are going to be made to exaggerate the immune response. Yeah. So the first two are leukotrienes and prostaglandins, mainly prostaglandins. They're formed from damaged cell membranes. So the fatty layer of the cell membrane is made up of phospholipids. It turns into arachidonic acid and goes through a pathway where it uses two important enzymes, COX-1 and COX-2, to create prostaglandins and leukotrienes are through a different pathway. And we, also when the immune, the immune cells are coming into the area, they'll also be producing these things as well. That's right. Now, the thing about prostaglandins is they do nearly everything in the body, but one thing that they really do is they're very good at vasodilating and increasing vascular permeability. So they support the role of histamine in this sense. But the other thing is they directly trigger nociceptors, which are pain receptors, to send off signals. So they cause pain. Right. Yep. Now, leukotrienes are very similar. They're very good at playing this role in regards to vasodilating and vascular permeability. But the next one I want to talk about are bradykinins. Oh, yeah. But they don't come from the tissue. They're coming from somewhere else. Where are they coming from? I think they came. They come within the blood. So, so my guess is the liver makes these enzymes. Yep. And when they come to an area of um, damage, in this case they get the um, enzymes become activated. And so this is the, I forget the kinin, calarian, something like that yep. process. But when they're cleaved to be active, one common outcome is a, 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 process, uh, sorry, a chemical called bradykinin. Yes. And bradykinin, again, can trigger these pain receptors, but they also increase vascular permeability. So, so that would probably be one of the most powerful pain-initiating chemicals in the mm. whole process of bradykinins. Yes. So I think, are there any other chemicals you want to talk about? Because I think... I think just broadly you then have the cytokines. Yes, but they come a little bit later. But they're, they're also... Exp- or they, you need to express genes, so your DNA, to then start to produce them. And so this is why it takes a bit longer because your immune cells have to start 
turn it on the genes and start actively pumping out these proteins. Yeah, so cytokines are interleukins and tumor necrosis factors. They're the good two to focus on, I think. Yes, and I think the way I perceive them in the body is that they support the role of inflammation. So the thing with inflammation is it's a positive feedback mechanism. So if you have damage to that area due to all the different reasons that Matt spoke about, it's going to continue to amplify its response until the initial cause is gone. So it amplifies, amplifies, amplifies. So that's positive feedback. Um, And so what cytokines do is they reinforce this positive feedback. Now the problem with cytokines is that sometimes they can spill over into the bloodstream. Even if you've got local inflammation, spill over into the bloodstream and travel systemically and trigger an inflammatory response at different areas in the body causing the blood vessel to dilate and the fluid to remove. And what happens is the blood pressure drops and tissues don't get fed because of this cytokine inflammatory response at certain tissues. And this leads to organ failure. What can do, yeah, like a type of sepsis. Correct. Or septic shock. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because of COVID-19. What can happen is you have an inflammatory response in the lungs and this inflammatory response... Which is the infection. Which is the infection, which is... The virus. The virus leading to pneumonia, which leads to... Well, and pneumonia is essentially just inflammation of the lungs. Correct. Yeah. And so this inflammation, if you've got an overactive or abundant response or an exaggerated response, these cytokines result in a cytokine storm that spills systemically and result in this end organ failure. So that's why they're looking at anti-inflammatory drugs as a primary treatment option for COVID to stop this end organ failure. Yeah, in the in the more serious end of the reaction. That's right. Yeah. But right. I think can I just add something here because I think you've just brought it up. Um, so then you also have uh, systemic effects of inflammation. So it might be in a dis- a discrete location, but you might actually have bodily response. I know Mike gave an example of sepsis, but you might actually have um, certain reactions. Um, which you can kind of tell that the patient's having a degree of inflammation. So an example would be, we said a cytokine like interleukin. Interleukin actually can go up to your hypothalamus and cause you to turn on a fever. So that's an indication of an inflamed or an infected process occurring. Other examples would be just fatigue, muscle soreness. Sometimes you get uh, an increase in certain proteins in your blood like um, C-reactive protein, fibrinogen, uh, are there any other ones that we, you think we should just mention? No, I think they're pretty good. Okay. And oh, I, I, I guess leukocytosis, which is just you have a bump, bumped up uh, white blood cell count. And so these are some of the things um, physicians can do if they want to do. If, if you've got, you know, you present with the general symptoms of, of malaise or some sort of infection, but you may not know where the infection is. And so they can look at inflammatory markers, which may be C-reactive proteins, look at your leukocytes, do you have leukocytosis, do you have, you know, uh, an abundance of neutrophils, for example, and so forth and so, because we'll talk about neutrophils shortly in the cellular response. All right, so in the first phases, still the vascular phase, we've got all these chemicals released, histamines, prostaglandins, bradykinins, leukotrienes, and cytokines, right? Now, there's obviously a barrage of others, but we're just going to focus on those ones. But the main point here is it results in vasodilation, and increased vascular permeability. More blood to the area, more heat. More blood to the area, more fluid leaving the blood vessel into the interstitium. And this then allows for proteins to leave, also allows for some white blood cells to leave 
shortly. Yes. Now, why do we want these things to happen at the site of damage? So, all these things have happened for a reason. So, there's intent, well, not conscious intent, but there's intent here that it wants vasodilation and increased vascular permeability to occur at the site of damage tissue. Why? What's what's the whole purpose of increasing the blood flow to this area? Okay, so it's bringing the key players to the area of injury. So if it, it's an infection, you want to get rid of the infectious agents. If it's necrotic tissue, you want to clean it up. So you not only want to bring fluid and kind of flush it out. Dilution di- is the solution. Sorry, I jumped to in. To pollution. What is it? Say it again. Dilution is the solution to pollution. Nice. The pollution, let's say, is not necrotic infected tissue. It's okay. not s- spilt oil in the Atlantic. No. Okay. Um, so all this fluid rushes in. So it, that's what swell up is, the swelling up is. Okay. But you're bringing in the cells now. So particularly the most important cells to bring in in the early phases are the ones that are going to be eating a lot of stuff. All right. So should we? So we've, are we done with the vascular phase? Yeah, I think so. All right. So now we're at the cellular phase. And the first cell to come through is a white blood cell. And you've got five major types of white blood cells, which you can remember through the mnemonic. What's the mnemonic, Matt? Do you remember? Something about bananas and monkeys. Yeah, never let monkeys eat bananas. So the N in That's never. Just cruel. <laughs> what's the N? Uh, neutrophil. L for let. Lymphocyte. M. Monocyte. E. Isonophil. And B. Basophil. Okay, so this is not just the five white blood cells, but that's the order of most abundant to least abundant. And the first one, neutrophils, which are the most abundant, they're the first cell called in due to inflammation. And what happens is... Particularly acute inflammation, right? Correct. So, so neutrophilia, is it neutrophilia? Um, mm-hmm. So if you look at a person's blood count and if they've got excessive amounts of neutrophils, it's indicative that it's an, in, in, an acute inflammatory response happening in the body. Yes. For instance, appendicitis. Yeah, after a couple of days, if the initial cause of the damage has been fixed, the neutrophil number should go down. So when we look at the neutrophils, so obviously as the blood vessel dilates, more components of the blood is coming through. That includes neutrophils. And what happens is as they come through, they stick to the walls of the blood vessel. Now, usually as blood moves through, you've got a certain type of flow through a blood vessel. And the flow is fastest in the middle, slowest on the outside, just like a highway. Right, the inner lanes are going to be. I was going to say water slide or a water slide, but let's use a highway. Right, the inner lanes are the fastest, the outer lanes are the slowest, and you've the ones in the outer lane. They're going to be turning off, they're peeling off, and that's what's happening. And are the the big things as well, like the big trucks. The big trucks are in the middle, so you've got the big trucks, the big semi trailers, and so forth, like the cells and some of the proteins sitting right Is that like normal or you're talking now in... No, this is normal. Okay. Right? This is what ha- what happens with normal blood moving through vasculature. Okay. Big things in the middle, cells, then smaller things, proteins, and then tiny things, solutes, ions, sure. things like that on the outside. But now, now we're inflamed. Now we're inflamed. All the fluids are leaving. Well, firstly, all the fluid is leaving, but we've got more blood going to the area and because yeah. the holes are bigger, this dynamic property of the blood vessel has changed. And so it becomes turbulent in that area. And so the big things start to move to the outside and little things get spun around and it increases the likelihood of the cells that run straight through the middle to now hit the wall. And because the wall has released a whole bunch of chemicals, there's sticky little components for the white blood cells to grab a hold of. And these specifically are neutrophils. And they hold onto the wall 
And when they hold onto the wall, they stick to it. And, and they roll. And they start to roll their way down. Now, as they roll their way down, it's called diapedesis. This is the movement of the neutrophil across the wall, rolling down the wall of the endothelium, the blood vessel. Then it finds the gap and it squeezes its way through the gap. And this is called mar- uh, margination. Okay. And then once it gets through that gap, it's now in the interstitium with all this fluid. How does it, it get out? Because isn't there a... Um Adhesion molecule, yeah, like a connective tissue. Oh yes, of course, that's Base, right. Basement membrane. Right? It's a good point. I always used to think, and I don't know why I used to think this, but when you've got your um, capillary bed and you've got the holes where the pores are, that things just move through the holes. But if there's a hole there, there's a hole either side of an endothelial cell. So what's that endothelial cell holding onto? So there's connective tissue, a very thin basement membrane. But they sit on that wraps around all of blood vessels. And so when the endothelial cells contract and the holes get bigger, things still need to move through the connective tissue. And that includes the neutrophils. So they release an enzyme called collagenase, which breaks down collagen, which is a primary component of connective tissue, and cuts a hole through. So through that margination, the white blood cell neutrophil pushes its way through and then travels to the site where the damage is. And neutrophils are phagocytes, so they eat things. So they find any damaging or potentially pathogenic agent, bacterial viruses try and gobble it up. They'll or, also, dead, or dead cells. Or dead cells. So they try and gobble the dead cells up. Now, that's the first white blood cell to come through. What's the second white blood cell? Well, in, in an acute inflammation, it's probably going to be the monocyte turning into a macrophage. And so I think... When does it turn into a macrophage? Uh, I think once it leaves the blood vessel and comes into the tissue, it becomes a macrophage. So it also starts to engulf things that yeah. it wants to get rid of. So it's but like um, you demolish a house, but you want to build a new house there. Yeah, before you can build the house, you've got to get rid of all the rubble. That's right. And that's what these two cells are doing. Neutrophils don't last very long, you know, maybe 12 hours, and then they die. And that's probably what you see the pus, you know, like when you have a particularly infected kind of tissue. So the pus is dead white blood cells. Particularly neuro- neutrophils. Because wow. once they've eaten enough, they kind of just apoptose. Yeah. Whereas a macrophage can continue to live, they can just keep processing whatever they've eaten and keep living. So they live a lot longer. They can live days to months. And yeah. so what these cells can also do, uh, particularly the macrophages, is they can take some of the components of what they've eaten. And if it's an invading pathogen like a virus or a bacteria, it can snap off some of the proteins on their surface and engulf it and then present it like a flag to yeah. the rest of our immune system. And it can say, hey, T and B cells. Which are lymphocytes. Which are lymphocytes, that's right. So now we've brought in three of the cells. It says, this thing's just invaded us. I don't want this thing to come and invade us again. I don't want to have to go through all this again. Can you remember this for future and create an army against this? And that's what it does. Mm. And so it creates a bit of immunological memory. And this can happen in the tissue itself. Or when this fluid that's sitting in the interstitium Obviously, it needs to be reclaimed back into the blood system at some point. And it does it through the lymphatic system. So a lot of this fluid gets drained. So that means any invading pathogens and macrophages will also get drained into the lymphatic system. Which, which, which drains that part of the body that's injured. So in, in case of my leg, it will probably go back up into the lymph nodes of my groin. Yes. And in the lymph nodes, we have resident B and T cells. And so this is where they... And they're naive. Like you. 
And they, so they recognize and they go, oh, okay, this is what I now need to create an army against. And so here in the lymph node, they start to grow and divide, grow and divide these B and T cells and the lymph node gets swollen. And that's why if you have inflammation in a particular area, the closest lymph nodes are usually swollen. Yeah, brilliant. Right? And this is it. I mean, this good, is good stuff. This is inflammation itself. Um, now, what are the differences if it resolves or doesn't resolve? So okay. if the injurious thing that caused the problem doesn't disappear, what, what can happen? So if it's maybe a really significant tissue injury, like a burn or a really bad scrape, it might take uh, weeks to heal. So you might have a lot more chronic inflammation occurring, which means uh, more scarring, more uh, fibrotic tissue in there. And that's usually why, if it's let's say at the skin level, that's why you have that kind of scar tissue laid down, which doesn't look like what the tissue once was. If you can heal it pretty closely, which we usually call, call first intention healing, like a, a laceration from a scalpel or a bit of glass or something, and you can get the two wound edges close together, then usually it just seals it up in a couple of weeks and it doesn't look like it has ever been injured. But if it's got a big gap and it takes a long time to heal, chronic inflammation comes in, lots of fibroblasts, lots of collagen, therefore a lot of scarring, and therefore um, it doesn't it, w- it will resolve, but it won't resemble the tissue it once was. And if this is in certain areas, like um, let's say your liver or your lung, yeah. okay, you have this chronic inflammation over long periods of time, you can start making these tissues fibrotic, and that becomes a problem because now their function doesn't work. You know, it's one thing having scar tissue in your skin. Yeah. I mean, you still got a barrier there, right? But it just doesn't look quite the same. So its function hasn't really changed. It's not a great deal. But if it's in your liver, for instance, if you've had an infection that's hung around for a long time, like hepatitis, hepatitis or if you've bombarded with chemicals over a long period of time, such as alcohol. Right. It don't know why you look at me when you <laughs> say that. It just goes through this chronic long-standing process and it's filled with fibrotic tissue which they call cirrhosis that means rock-like and that's um, causing a detriment or if it's in your so lung- that impedes its function that's right if it's in your lungs um, the function it- of the lungs is for diffusion of gases yeah and so if you've breathed in things you shouldn't such as rock dust like silica oh, i'll try not to um so certain jobs historically would have been coal coal mines or cutting certain rocks and you would have breathed it in. Um, your body can't get rid of it. This is the foreign agent we're talking about. Oh, yeah. And you just have this ongoing inflammatory response in your lung, laying down fibrotic tissue. Because oh, it can't get rid of the injurious agent. Correct. So inflammation, inflammation, inflammation. Heaps of fibrotic tissue, yep. which is scar tissue, which thickens the diffusion membrane. Yeah, and it just means your lungs can't expand and you get restrictive lung diseases. Oh, okay. All right, so makes sense. So basically, even though inflammation, so this is my this is a take home message that I'm getting from this is that even though inflammation is an innate response of the immune system, so it doesn't care what's causing it, it has the same response. The outcome is quite variable depending on where it's happening in the body, yeah, especially the- if the outcome is. Uh, has been over time, chronic. Yeah, you can't resolve it, Mm. you have problems. So acute inflammation either resolves and it goes away and you heal or it goes into a longer standing and you start to go into a chronic state. And we're not going to go into that, but usually bring other mediators in or other cells in like lymphocytes, okay, fibroblasts. Um, And if that doesn't resolve, that can continue on for decades and then you can get disease. Or you might go into an 
an acute reaction which becomes so deleterious, it can cause serious pathology or even death. Yes. So in saying that, let's talk about some pharmacological agents we can use to mitigate inflammation. Sure. Now, maybe we can talk a bit about non-pharmacological agents, first of all, because one of the things that we often do is if something happens and you get, you know, let's say you twist your ankle, right? And you, it gets inflamed because you've damaged the connective tissue of your ankle and it gets swollen. So you tend to ice it, right? Now, why would somebody ice an inflamed area? Well, because it feels hot and so you want to put something cold on, but also cold temperatures constrict peripheral vasculature. So constricting it limits the blood flow to the area. Now, limiting the blood flow to the area will limit the swelling and will limit the loss of function that usually comes from the swelling. Which and we probably do. the pain. And probably the pain. Um, but you're limiting an inflammatory response, which is probably going to that area to help resolve the issue in the first place. So I'm not sure what the current recommendation is for icing sprains. You should probably check that out. And I'm not going to offer any advice here. <laughs> but there may be some issues in trying to mitigate an inflammatory response uh, immediately. Now, in saying that, things like uh, some fevers, some sort of pain, which may be due to uh, teething, like my daughter suffers from teething pain, for example, um, which is the tooth trying to move through the, the gum, so tissue leading to inflammation. And it's horrible because she won't eat and she cries and she's painful and she can't articulate herself. So we need to mitigate both the pain and the inflammation. So some sort of medications that we can use can mitigate both the pain Topic, and the inflammation. Topical gel. Well, we could use topical gel, but it doesn't work at this age anymore. Doesn't it? No. So we are using NSAIDs. Minimal amounts, but non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So it's all in the name. The Mm. non-steroidal, which means they don't work by playing around with the DNA. That's how steroids work. They jump in and transcribe DNA. But they work by stopping specifically. Remember at the beginning I spoke to you, Matt, about the prostaglandins and how they're made from the cell walls. Yeah, Cell Cell membranes. Cell membranes. We're not plants here, mate. All right? (laughs) So... The prostaglandins are made from cell membranes uh, through those enzymes COX-1 and COX-2. There's a whole bunch of different prostaglandins uh, that do different functions, but a lot of them uh, are pro-inflammatory and, uh, 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 what do we say? Um, more, co- more COX-2s, I think, are inflammatory. Yes, but pro-inflammatory and also um, stimulate nociception. What do we say there? Uh, uh, well, they just sensitize nerves. What's the term we use? So the like the drug is analgesic. So uh, G, uh, I can't. Don't know. Oh my god. Anyway, what's, what's the term we use for pain? Nociception. Yeah, we'll just use that. Oh, so noxious. Nox- no. Anyway, so these NSAIDs can include aspirin, ibuprofen, uh, Celebrex. Uh, uh, what else is Diclofenac. there? Diclofenac. Um, would you say acetaminophen? Well, that's a, it's a hard one. So, so that's paracetamol, paracetamol, right? That's um, not a true NSAID. So it's I did a video on NSAIDs. It's got a little on YouTube. A lot of likes, a lot of views. Now, I included paracetamol or acetaminophen in the video, but I made the statement that it's not a true NSAID yeah. because it doesn't have many anti-inflammatory roles. But I included it... Because, Centrally, a little bit. Yes, but I included it because it's still... You can't really put it anywhere else. Well, it, it blocks COX enzymes. 
just like ibuprofen, just like aspirin, just like diclofenac, just like Celebrex. They all block the COX enzymes. So does acetaminophen. And everyone's like, it's not an NSAID. Okay. Who cares? It's just a name that we use to draw a circle around something. But it still blocks the COX enzymes. Maybe a COX-3, we don't really know how it works. But in this sense, it's not anti-inflammatory. So, well, like you said, centrally maybe. So, Can I just add one point here? Yes. Uh, I think it does block a COX enzyme, but particularly in the uh, hypothalamus, which is um, it produces prostaglandins in the hypothalamus, which then induces the fever. And so where it's centrally acting, it stops fever. Paracetamol stops, stops fever. Yes. But it's only the COX enzymes within the hypothalamus, not in the tissue that we just spoke about. Exactly. And that's a really good point because a lot of people will look at pa- uh, Panadol or Paracetamol and um, Ibuprofen as interchangeable. Uh, when will I take that? When will I take that? Oh, it's just a preference as opposed to when is most clinically relevant. Mm. And, you know, I, I would like to think that ibuprofen is the anti-inflammatory. You've got some inflammatory response and the pain is caused by the inflammation, ibuprofen. Mm. If you've got fever or pain in the acute term, Panadol, paracetamol, right? The paracetamol is not going to be that great for uh, anti-inflammatory pain. Correct. Right? Yeah, yeah. So that, that's how I see it. And Celebrex is used for joint pain, musculoskeletal pain and Anyway, we don't need to go into well, that. Longer-term inflammation as well. Yes. Because there are p- limitations with using things like uh, ibuprofen long-term. With all of them? With the side effects. I th- I yeah, yeah. Is, yeah. Paracetamol, ibuprofen, or, you know, they, because we need prostaglandins to help protect our gut lining, right? And so if you're stopping the prostaglandins, some of these prostaglandins will stop that gut lining from being formed and that's why they say eat them on a full stomach or eat them with food because you don't want to create ulcers. So... Ibuprofen, for example, can damage your gut lining because it stops that um, those prostaglandins that protect it. Other drugs that can be used can be anti-inflammatory steroids, right? And they work by... So they're obviously not NSAIDs. They're the opposite. They're steroidal use, anti-inflammatory. Do you use these ones for bodybuilding? Oh, different types of steroids, oh, Matt, yes. Right. So the ones that have given me my 32-inch biceps or pythons, as they're often referred to as in the gym, uh, <laughs> different kind of steroid. Um, but yeah... You, there's certain anti-inflammatory steroids like uh, dexamethasone, which has been spoken about in the news today to, as a potential treatment to reduce mortality in COVID, but it's anti-inflammatory. So it stops all the pro-inflammatory chemicals that come from transcription and translation, like what Matt was talking even about, the production, like the cytokines. Even the production of the actual immune cells uh, and the agents that help with repair as well. So it might be good in a a local situation to use these drugs or even in the short term. But if you lengthen it out, then you're uh, blocking the immune response in a way. You, you stop, you're going to stop making new immune cells and um, the repair process. So this is why some of these chemicals um, impact wound healing and also suppress the immune system, which yeah. sometimes this is the reason why we give these drugs. So if you wanted to... Um, stop an immune re- reaction like in an autoimmune re- disease, you might give these steroid drugs. Or if you want your immune system killing off a kidney that you just transplanted, you might actually use these drugs. Yeah, that's a good point. So the steroids are, yeah, their anti-inflammatory action is through immunosuppression, basically. And that's that's a good point because, like you said, there's some autoimmune disorders that cause inflammation. 
Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, any other any other th- points you want to discuss? Or no, are we? I think we've done a good job. I think we've for once we've we've done a good job. So this infl- now the last thing I want to do is I want to give a shout out. Now I know I wait to the end of the episode, but I had a, a listener on Instagram contact me. His name's Mitchell Barnes. He is studying at Arizona State, and I'm going to give him a shout out. How the, are you, the, Mitch? The state of uni- Arizona, or uh, the the whole state is a university, as far as oh. I'm aware. Uh, yeah, I I didn't actually Smart study. State. It must be, uh, Mitch. This is your shout out, buddy. I hope you're doing well. If you like a shout out, please feel free to contact <laughs> me on uh, Instagram at Dr. Mike Todorovic. So at D R M I K E T O D O R O V I C. We're happy to answer your questions. What, other, what else can listeners do? Well, give us topics. I've got a every week a good number of people send me emails at gubiosciences at gmail.com uh, or just via Instagram and just say, hey, can you do a topic on this? So please feel free to contact me. We've got a huge list of topics that we need to work our way through. So we may not hit yours for a little while, but we've got a huge list of topics and feel free to nominate. Now, make sure that the topic isn't so specific that it's not relevant to others. Or your assignment. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, hey, can you can you specifically uh, do a video on the way that this particular drug works in the context of this case study that I'm emailing you? And compare and contrast it <laughs> and keep it to about 2,000 words. Yes, and make sure that it's a, you get around about 50 marks for it, please. Don't and please say, reference. Oh, yeah, make sure you include your references. <laughs> All right, we're done. Thanks, everyone. Ciao. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.